Over the last few months, we've been reading together from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus shows us how upside down, how counterculture, and how counterintuitive the kingdom of God is from the world that we imagine. And now as we begin Lent together, we move on from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus kind of shows, up, shows us the, the shape of what it means to follow him. And we come to this passage in Matthew where we can see what the cost is of following him. So a little bit of context here. Uh, in the verses right before this, after Jesus comes down off the mountain, he's finished giving his sermon, uh, he immediately performs three back-to-back miracles. Uh, leper's hand, cured. Servant, uh, healed. Paralyzed servant, healed without Jesus even having to enter the house. Peter's mother-in-law, healed instantly, and then Jesus spends the rest of that day uh, performing miracles, healing the sick, curing those who are oppressed by demons. So, fa- so following Jesus sounds pretty great right about now. But then we get to our passage today. Matthew 8, chapter 18 through 20, or Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. Four little verses, two parallel stories of what it means to follow Jesus. And in the same way that the Sermon on the Mount shows us what the kingdom of God really looks like, these two little exchanges with his disciples show us what following Jesus really looks like. Will you pray with me as we open God's word together? Heavenly Father, draw us closer to Jesus today. Lord Jesus Christ, we want to see more of you today. Holy Spirit, will you open the pages of your holy word and illuminate them and open our hearts and our minds and make us ready to be true followers of Jesus today. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Jesus calls for imitation when most of us are much more comfortable with moderation. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, this is starting in verse 18, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Jesus, clearly a high-functioning introvert, many of you can relate. Jesus sees these people pressing in on him, and he says, I want to go across the sea. I want to be just with you guys. And then a scribe comes up to him, and he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. With, so, with, with four short verses and such an economy of words, each one of them means something. So Matthew tells us that it, this was a scribe. What's a scribe? I don't think that we need to know everything about what being a scribe is, but that detail is in here clearly for our benefit. It doesn't just say that some guy came up to him. For our purposes here, I think that we can safely assume that a scribe is probably somebody with steady work in his town. He might not be the richest guy in town, but a scribe would have been a respected figure in the community. A scribe would have been someone who knew where his next meal was coming from, someone of means. And because he would have dealt with parchments and scrolls and ink pots. He would have had to have somewhere to store it all. So a scribe was probably somebody with a permanent home. So picture this scene. Jesus and his disciples on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. He's given orders to go over to the other side of the the sea in a boat. They've actually dug up some of these boats that were around at the time of Jesus out of the mud of the Sea of Galilee. They're in a museum right on the edge of the sea. And you can tell they could fit a number of people, but they couldn't fit everybody. There's limited room in this boat. And we get the sense that Jesus knew that the scribe did not know what he was signing up for when he says to him those little simple words, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. 
And so in just a few words, Jesus tests the limits of that statement. Because Jesus calls for imitation when most of us are much more comfortable with moderation. Even the animals have a place to call home, Jesus says. But following me is motion. Following me is movement. To use an Old Testament word, it is a journey. It is a path. By and large, if you look at the people who followed Jesus throughout the rest of the New Testament, it often didn't go great for them. Should we, therefore, be expected to be persecuted for the gospel or chased out of town for the gospel or fired or hated or harmed for the gospel? Not necessarily. The Bible is full of lots of examples of people who who don't get a name or don't get a story, but we see pictures of them, people who just want to worship Christ, people who want to live for Christ, and people who want to, as the Apostle Paul said, have a quiet life and live peacefully with other people. And so we shouldn't expect to get persecuted for our faith, but based on what the Bible shows us about following Jesus, it shouldn't surprise us all that much if we do. Because this journey, this this path, this motion of following Christ, it always leads to a cross. It always leads to suffering. The verse on your front of your worship guide, Jesus himself said, if anybody would follow after me, he must pick up his cross daily and follow me. There's an incredible Bible teacher named Jen Wilkin, who I just love listening to her stuff. She was talking about this recently. She mentioned, uh, she was talking about Acts chapter 14, where we hear about Paul and Barnabas going to all these various cities, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in their faith saying that through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. We don't really want to hear that today. They didn't really want to hear that back then either. Jen Wilkin diagnosed our condition pretty well when she says that what we want out of following Christ, we want the crown without the cross. We don't want to admit that through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. We want to think that through many blessed and and wonderful spiritual experiences, we enter the kingdom of God. And that's true, but the, but the door is always cross-shaped. And so one scribe comes up to Jesus and he says, teacher, teacher, that word alone, this scribe knew that Jesus is smart. This guy, Jesus, is smart. He has all the answers. I want the answers too. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you want to go. Let me get on that boat with you. Jesus says, Cool. Are you ready to give up all the security that you've built up based on what you've accomplished, the stuff that you own? Are you ready to give all that up and follow me? Because I don't have anywhere to lay my head. Nine years ago, I got divorced. Nine years ago, right after my divorce, which God used to bring me to a a real faith in him for the first time in my life, I kind of got this idea in my head that I was going to travel the world. Not like for the sake of the gospel, mind you. I just, I thought it'd be kind of cool to redo my vocation and and just travel around, be a consultant, and help open restaurants. And so I spent a ridiculous amount of time learning about effective travel gear and like super expensive shirts and pants that you can wear for months without them, uh, without needing to wash them, and how to to do three different climates with only one carry-on. And so I kind of fancied myself that I was following in Christ's footsteps, that I was going to be comfortable having no place to lay my head. But if I'd gotten a sense from God at that time, if I'd gotten a sense from him that said, you need to give away everything that you have, which admittedly is like 
not much. But you need to give away everything that you have and follow me with only the clothes on your back and trust me for everything that you need. I probably would have been like, okay, but can I keep this backpack and this iPad? Because and... I'm not sure that I'm up for that, God. Because despite, despite my outward interest in being sold out for God, a lot, a lot of my inward real estate was still committed to me. It was not committed to Jesus. It took me years, and it took me some incredibly painful conversations and confrontations to give back the rest of that land to God because I was more interested in moderation than in imitation. Do I, do I really want to be sold out for the gospel like, like Paul was or like Peter was? Not really. I kind of want everything in moderation. The journey of following Christ with our entire being can be painful as we strip away the exterior markers of our identity and we look to be shaped by him. It can be scary as we shed the things that we lean on for security and identity and we put all all of our trust in him. And it's kind of fitting that we came to this passage right at the start of Lent. Lent used to be the, the final time of catechesis before somebody was received into the church. It was a a year of preparation, of being trained in the the basics of Scripture and the basics of theology and the basics of of the Christian practice. And then this final exam, this 40-day fast that culminated into a new believer being received into the church through baptism, dying and being raised again into newness of life on Easter morning. That's what Lent has historically been. Maybe this time of Lent can be for you and for me a time of looking at our life and seeing how much of ourselves we can die to. What we can give up that is holding us back from having every single aspect of our life being given over to Christ. The second of our two little stories. Verse 21, And then another one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, this second guy, this second guy is even more committed to Jesus than the first guy was. The first guy, the scribe, he called him teacher, and that's a great term of respect, but it's not a term of submission. The second guy, he kind of gets it. The second guy calls him kurios, which is master or leader or lord. He says, Lord, let me go bury my father. Nope, says Jesus. Follow me, leave the dead to bury their own dead. In one sentence command, he gives an instruction to that guy and an instruction to us that seems to go against any kind of decent behavior or law or cultural custom. And so you have to ask yourself, when you see something this stark, what is going on here? A little note on on idiom and and cultural context in, in this passage. It might sound to you, it sounded to me when I first read it, it might sound to you like, Jesus, my father just died. Let me go bury him and then I'll catch up with you. But it's much more likely that this was a a cultural idiom of the time, let me bury my father. Basically, um, because if the father was already dead, the disciple wouldn't be there in the first place. The disciple would be at home going through the grieving rituals and making preparations. It's much more likely that he was saying, basically, let me live out my duties as a son for my aging father with no potential for, for his imminent death. And this guy was in all likelihood, the eldest son, probably preparing to take over the family after he had buried his father. And that sounds like a good thing. That sounds like following the fifth commandment, which we said and heard earlier. Trying, somebody trying to 
honor their father and mother. But basically, this is a disciple asking for an indefinite extension before real discipleship kicks in. It's not somebody asking to catch up with Jesus in a day or two. A scholar named Craig Blomberg pointed out that this story reminded him of the story of Elisha's request of Elijah in 1 Kings 19, 19 through 21, which we heard earlier. The prophet Elijah was a monster prophet, one of the most important people in the Old Testament. And he is calling Elisha to be his next disciple, to carry on this prophetic vision that God has given him in this story of God's redemption. So he calls Elisha to be his replacement. And Elisha says, let me run home and say goodbye to my folks. Let me go kiss my father and my mother. Elijah says, sure, go ahead. He grants his request. Even though following this prophet is something that is fairly urgent and important. And Elisha, he takes, that, uh, he takes that freedom. He goes home and he kisses his parents goodbye, but then he leaves everything that he has intentionally. When Elijah found him, he was plowing a field behind a team of oxen. After Elijah calls him, he goes home and he slaughters those oxen and he sacrifices them to God. He's basically burning his ships and saying, I'm leaving everything behind to go do what God has for me, to go follow this prophet. Jesus, however, Jesus, the parallel to this story, to follow Jesus, the discipleship that's required is so important and so urgent and so all-encompassing that when our disciple here says, let me, go, let me bury my father first, that request is simply denied. No, says Jesus, following me is not something that you slot into the gaps in the rest of your life. The rest of your life is something that you pattern off of following me. And so, regardless of whether it's a cultural idiom for a future death or whether this man's father had literally died, regardless, what Jesus says to his disciples sounds utterly shocking, almost cruel. And I, I want to pause on this for a minute. Because what can we make of it when Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead? It's obviously a, a, a bit of poetry, a, an epigram, something that a, a teacher would say to kind of bring the listener up short. Let the dead bury their own dead. How can this be the same Jesus who said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest? How can this be the how can this be hippie Jesus surrounded by children and animals teaching the world how to love? Think about it this way. Jesus had absolutely no trouble telling his followers where true life is found. Over and over throughout the gospels, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He says, I am the bread of life come down from heaven. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He has no trouble referring to himself as the source of true life. And so if the Bible is right, and if we all, every one of us, is born spiritually dead because of the sin that each of us is born with, and if the Bible is right, and if Jesus is right, that he is the only way to true life, then of course it follows that compared with those who have found true life in the kingdom of God, Those who remain outside of it are dead. Kind of reminds me of when Jesus says that unless someone is willing to hate his father and mother and brother and sister, that he cannot be part of the kingdom of heaven. Basically, Jesus is setting up a stark picture of priorities, and he's talking about about an urgency. If you are a follower of Christ, you realize that life comes only through Christ, and you are on mission for Christ. 
And if you're on mission for Christ, it takes first priority in your life because you know that Christ is the only thing that gives you life. And so even though we know that walking in this way, following this truth, pursuing this real life, even though we know that we're following Christ, we know that it will lead to suffering. We know that we cannot have the crown without the cross. We know that we will always be strangers and sojourners in this world. And so what is the cost of following Jesus? It's not a trick question. There's lots of verses throughout all the Gospels and, in fact, all the Bible about counting the cost of this life of following God. There's a well-known book by a German pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's from the 1930s. It's called The Cost of Discipleship, and it talks about this very issue. Bonhoeffer looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and he wrote about what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus and what it can cost you from the world's perspective. Bonhoeffer counted the cost of following Jesus, decided that it was worth the cost, and then tried to kill Adolf Hitler. And he got himself hanged for it. But that cost of discipleship was worth it to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you've never read this book, I cannot recommend it enough. And so you have to ask, what is the cost of following Christ? What parts of our life do we have to give up? As this disciple had to give up his place as the eldest son, ready to assume the mantle of responsibility for his, fa- for his family. My wife said that I could tell this story. In fact, she wrote up the details of it in terms of the cost of following Christ. On Ash Wednesday in 2016, my wife Elizabeth, who wasn't my wife yet, was sitting in a church. And because it was Ash Wednesday, the sermon that day was on God calling, up to, God calling us to give up things in our lives. She sat and she listened, and she felt the Holy Spirit nudge her, will you give up your career? Shocked by this, Elizabeth said, uh, no, do I need to? I really don't want to. I don't think I need to. I can be an actor and follow you at the same time. I'm going to marry Jay, I'm going to be a pastor's wife, and I'm going to be an actor. I can do this. And as soon as she said these words, she realized that they weren't true. Elizabeth had spent 25 years becoming both a very good actor and, in her words, those same 25 years becoming a very shabby Christian. She knew this, but it took another full year before she was able to lay down her career at the foot of the cross and walk away from it. Let the dead bury their own dead. She had stopped slotting Christ into the gaps in the rest of her life, and she let the urgency and the importance of following Christ shape the pattern of her life instead. What is the cost of following Jesus? What's the cost of discipleship? After the first service, somebody came up to me and said something that is so clear and obvious and good that it made me really mad that I hadn't said it myself. <laughs> she came up and she said, I thought that, that what you said about the, the cost of following Christ, the high cost, is, is good, but the cost of following Jesus is very high, but the cost of not following him is so much higher because no matter how faithful we are a follower of Christ... We're dependent on the grace of God to be a follower of Christ in the first place. And that's how this idea of, of selling out for Jesus, that's how it can still fit in with the idea of a good and gracious God. Do we follow this Jesus radically and fully so that he'll like us and so that he'll let us into his little club? 
No, the Bible, the entire Bible, talks about a God who has this relationship of grace, of one-way love with his people. A perfect and holy God who gives to us a salvation that we could not possibly ever earn ourselves. He gives to us a resurrection life that we could never, ever deserve. And then, because of that, and that's why the order is important, because of that grace that has already been given to us, God calls his people to respond by putting him first, by shaping the pattern of our lives after him. Out of acknowledgement of his sovereignty and acknowledgement of, of gratitude for that grace, we put Christ first in our lives. The cost of following Jesus is high. It can change and it should change your priorities, your values, the choices that you make. But the cost of following Jesus is nothing compared to what it costs to be Jesus. Let me close with a quote from Bonhoeffer um, about that, about this idea that, that he develops of costly grace. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of which people go and sell everything that they have. Costly grace is Christ's sovereignty for the sake of which you would tear out an eye if it causes you to stumble. Costly grace is the, Christ, is the call of Jesus Christ that causes a disciple to just drop his nets and leave them and follow him. It is costly because it calls us to discipleship, but it is grace because it calls us to discipleship of Jesus. It's costly because it costs people their lives, but it is grace because it thereby makes them live. And above all, grace is costly because it was incredibly costly to God. Because it costs God the, the life of God's Son. And because nothing can be cheap to us that is costly to God. Above all, costly grace is grace because the life of God's Son was not too costly for God to give in order so that we could have true life. And so as we enter into these six weeks of Lent, maybe this can be a time for you and for me, a time of looking at your life and seeing how much of yourself you can die to seeing what you can give up that is holding you back from having every single aspect of your life given over to Christ. It is costly to do that. But the less we hold on to the world, the more we can cling to Christ, who is true life. Amen.